0: We're in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Clash of the ram and the goat. Now there's a lot of symbolism in this chapter. So please, follow along with me. Try not to drift too far. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. And after the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision. And so happened, while I was looking, that I was in Sushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Euphrates. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and two horns were high, and one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And I was considering suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no, no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male gro- goat grew very great and when he became strong the large horn was broken and in place of it four notable ones came up from the four winds of heaven and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and towards the glorious land and it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away And the place of a sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. And he did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The clash of the ram and the goat. And I'm telling you, if you're going through the Bible in a year, and you get to this chapter, and you're going to read it and go, what is that all about? Well, get ready. I'm hopefully going to help you with that today. The theme of Daniel is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over nations. God is sovereign over rulers. And guess what? He's sovereign over you. (laughs) Yes, he is. That means he's all-powerful. Nothing happens by coincidence. He's orchestrating world events. Believe that. Last week we talked about Daniel had a vision. There were kind of like four subgroups to that main vision. He saw four kings rise out of the earth, and we know from that statue that it was Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and they came on the scene as the Bible predicted. The Bible is accurate. It tells us what is coming. And Rome was going to be the most d- dreadful. That was the legs on the iron the iron legs on the statue. And there was an east and west division. And today we have an east and west division of nations, and that is what we are in today. The east and west division of, of planet Earth soon to become a ten nation or ten power, or ten horns will come up, which horns are indicative of power, and kings will rise up, and this world will be split out into ten ruling areas. We know that is going to happen. Now, we also know that, that those ten toes were a mixture of clay and a mixture of iron, and that they won't adhere to one another. They'll be weak. It'll give cause for the Antichrist to rise up, and he's going to subdue three of those kingdoms, and then he will assert his rule over the whole planet Earth. We saw that in 719 last time. And he's going to be a pompous one, and he's going to be be, be unleashing his hatred towards the saints, but most of his hatred is going to be pointed at one people group in particular, and that is the Jewish people. Why? Because there's two things that the Jews have to do. They have to confess their national sin of rejecting Messiah, in Hosea five fifteen, and they must plead for Jesus to return. Remember Matthew twenty three thirty seven through thirty nine. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and kill those who are sent to you. How I long to gather you as a hen, gather their chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate until you say, Baruch Abab, B'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The nation of Israel has to plead for Messiah to come back. Antichrist, Satan knows, kill the Jews, and they can't do that. That's why anti-Semitism has existed in this world from the beginning. Satan's goal is to kill as many Jews as he can. Now, Antichrist reign will be a short reign. It'll be a a three-and-a-half-year period of time. The tribulation period will be seven years, but his ascent will be slow. He is a little horn. He ascends slowly into power. At the three-and-a-half-year mark, remember, he sets up the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about more today, because Antiochus, Epiphanes, Someone we're going to talk about today also is a picture of the Antichrist who also has an abomination, a desolation in the temple. So his reign will be short and it will abruptly end. And who, who ends Antichrist reign? Jesus Messiah. And remember the stone coming down, Nebuchadnezzar statue, Daniel having his vision, and the stone target area are the ten-nation confederation led by Antichrist and this whole Gentile nation thing crumbles, setting the stage up for guess what? Jesus' millennial kingdom, which will have no end. There'll be no other Gentile kingdoms rising up. Jesus' kingdom will last a thousand years, and then we go into the eternal reign. That is what is on the horizon. We also learned that Antichrist sets up a counterfeit trinity. I don't know if we if you remember that from last time, where Satan plays the role of the Father, the Antichrist, the Son, and the false prophet, the Holy Spirit, even counterfeiting a resurrection of Antichrist in the tribulation period, counterfeiting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And please note this. I said this last week, and I think this is an important addendum to this. All who are not written in the book of life. Remember, the book of life contains all names of humanity throughout history. And your name is retained in the book of life the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ. Your name is there forever. And if you reject the name of Jesus Christ, if you reject him as your Savior, it is taken out of the book of life. And that is a tragic event. Those who are not written in the book of life will fall for Satan's deception and worship the Antichrist. They're going to think that the Antichrist is the real Christ. Anti can mean against or can mean instead of. In that context, it's instead of the real Christ. He's going to come and look like the real Christ, doing signs and wonders and miracles. And those who follow him will be lost, and their abode will be forever in the lake of fire, separated from God. This is tragic. Something that need not be. Now this week, we're going to talk about the clash of the ram and the goat. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study this Word. And Lord, there's a lot of symbolism here, so Holy Spirit, help me to rightly divide the Word and may be what is conveyed to your people today, to all of us today, your truth and how you would like us to understand this Scripture. Speak to us things that we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just an introduction, where we have been in the past chapters. Just the cliff notes is this. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in that dream he has a statue. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, ten-nation confederation. The next chapter we see that the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they do not bow to a gold image that Nebuchadnezzar puts up. And they say, no, we will not bow. We will not serve you, king, no matter what. In the next chapter, chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar getting his due and in his arrogance and his hubris, he's walking on the towers of Babylon and he's saying how great and how wonderful he is. And He has a dream and Daniel interprets and says, "Oh king, you're, you're going to be chopped down. And in his arrogance, a year later, he's walking around and still expressing his arrogance and hubris and he takes seven seasons. And finally, at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says those great words, You, O oh God, are the only true God. In chapter 5, it's the end of the the Babylonian reign. Belshazzar is the king, and he thinks he's safe. Persia is knocking on the door. Persia is coming, but he thinks he's safe because he's in this fortress. Remember, the wall was high. It was so wide you could have chariot races across the top of the wall. He had a water supply with the river. He had 20 years of food stored up, and he has a party and he takes out the vessels of the temple, and on the wall in Belshazzar's fifteenth year of his reign, the last day, these words come out: "Menne, menne, tiko, yupserub. numbered, numbered, divided. Your kingdom will be divided, and it was divided between the Medes and it was in the Persians. Exactly, what is predicted. Then we have Daniel in the lions' den, and how the angel came and closed the mouth of the lions." And in chapter 7, we saw how God views the Gentile rulers. He views them as beasts, as animals. And that takes us in to chapter 8 today. And we start out with the historical background in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so it's a, it, it, this, this isn't chronological, 5, 6, 7, 8, they, they are not chronological in order. He goes back and forth in time. This is the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after one that appeared to me the first time. That was in chapter 7 that we went through. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan. This is a capital city, going to be a capital city, a major city in Persia. He's projected forward in time. And the citadel, which is the fortified place, which is the province of Elam, And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. He's being very specific. So we know historically this is exactly what happened. Future to Daniel's vision and Daniel's dream. So, chapter 8, the setting is Belshazzar's third year. Daniel has visions, and this is his second major vision. And I want you to remember something. Daniel was taken captive at age 15. And when he was taken captive, he was fully, there was an attempt to fully indoctrinate him into Babylon. He lost his family, he lost his friends, he lost his name, he lost his identity, but he never ever lost his God, no matter how much they tried to indoctrinate him. Never do you see Daniel in all of his lifetime resenting God, mad at God disappointed with God, even though he lost everything. He lost his family, his friends, his brothers, his sisters, his life. He lost everything, but never do you see a pity party with him. Folks, that's a lesson for us. thats We don't know what's going to happen in our lives. But to shake our fist at God and go, why, God, did you do that? That's not going to get us anyplace. These people had a faith in God that transcended anything that would happen to them here. He lived in captivity most of his life. And what you see is a man of God, used by God in difficult circumstances, who had a great attitude through his whole life. His whole life. Daniel was faithful through it all. Adolescence to old age. He lived strong. He finished strong. And let me say this. There's a life lesson here, folks. There's a life lesson for us. And it is this. There is no retirement from God's service. Now is that clear? There is, there is. Don't see anything in the Bible about. I taught Sunday school all these years, and I don't want to do. Hey, look, your role may change. You don't have to be in Sunday school or nursery to the death. I liked what one guy said I just heard recently. Getting people to work in 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 nursery is 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 analogous to somebody going through the tribulation period. It was just so, you know, hey, your heroes that work there. Heroes. So there's no retirement from God's service. No, I did my part. Now I'm going to coast. Again, your roles may change, but our service to God is until we are no longer here. Now, how do I know this? How do I know this is this is important in the eyes of God? Because Jesus said this in John chapter 9, verse 4. He said, Remember this, I must do the works of him who who has sent me while it is day, while it is life. While I have my life, for the night is coming, for each one of us, the night is coming, death is coming, when no one can work. Folks, this is our time. This is our time. This little thing called our life, this little of time. Okay, you're here for just a moment. One generation, you're going to be forgotten. When your great-grandkids, they get older, they might have a little hazy remembrance of you, but after that, you're just nothing. You just, you just came through. And somebody will see your old picture one day and go, who are those people? Gosh, there was actually people back then. Okay, Yeah. yeah. We must work while it is light. What is Jesus? What work does he want for? What's the main thing that Jesus Christ wants for every single believer? To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. To become more and more like Jesus and less and less like us. That is the whole purpose of our existence here. Secondly, when I'm conformed to the likeness of Christ, I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus. And Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. I'm a representative of the king. Let people see the representative of the king and not you. That is very important. You have to see less of you, more of you like Jesus. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be brought in right relationship with God. That is what ambassadors do. We are telling the world a message of life, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through him. So that is our goal. Now, let me take a breath. (sighs) Okay, back to Daniel's vision. He goes to Susa, which is 250 miles east of Babylon. He's taken taking, taking a distance, and he's taken into the future. Now, Susa, is you might have heard this because that's where Esther was from. Nehemiah was familiar with Susa. Henry Morris says this, Daniel was translated in his vision to the capital of Persia even before Persia had conquered Babylon. Furthermore, his vision then prophesied the eventual defeat of persia and greece and and as as the still more distant breakup of the grecian empire with the four generals which we're going to come up with in just a second it's not surprising that those who deny supernatural divine inspiration must try to assign the book of daniel to a later period the critics of the bible say oh that this can't be true Daniel can't be foretelling. He can't be seeing into the future. He's just recording history as it occurred. That's not true. There's there's tons and tons of evidence that this was written way before these kingdoms came into existence. So unbelievers will do anything to deny the plain truth. Bible prophecy, that's what we're seeing here. Something that was foretold coming to fruition. They will do anything to deny that Bible prophecy. That the Bible prophecy is is not true, or that God doesn't exist. Bible prophecy proves that God, that the Bible's true, and that God exists. Daniel shouts to us, folks, loud and clear. It screams at us. God is orchestrating human events. The Bible is true. It's accurate, and it can be trusted. It. Thank you. Amen. That's an amen time. So, verse three and four. Our first main player is the ram. It's Medo-Persia, and I want you to understand that when Medo-Persia went into battle, Cyrus had a ram's hat on and a ram's emblem. That's how we get this. Greece under Alexander had the goat. Had the goat. Okay. So anyway, let's let's read verses three and four. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. Now, this is going to be Persia, Medo-Persia. Two horns, Medes and Persians. The two horns were high. They're both powerful. One was higher than the other. Oh, more powerful than the other. And the higher one came up last, so Persia comes in last. We're going to expand on that in just a second. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so no animal could withstand him, nor was there any any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became great. This is Persia becoming great. Now, let's develop this. This is speaking of the Medes and the Persians. The two horns, one horn higher than the other. I have a picture here, just to to kind of stimulate your mind. One horn higher than the other. Picture this. This in, It starts out with the Medes higher and the Persians lower, but there's a battle later on in history where Persia becomes predominant. And just like the Bible says, it started out the little one, but it became the big one. Bible prophecy is accurate. It is accurate right down to the little details. Two horns. The Medes started strong, but were surpassed by Persia. Exactly what happened historically has been predicted in the Bible hundreds of years before it came to fruition. Hundreds of years. The Bible is accurate and the Bible is trustworthy. Now, ask yourself this question. How in the world can the Bible be so accurate? And I will suggest to you it's supernatural. (laughs) It's supernatural. Here are the words of the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 19-20, hear these words. Really try to concentrate on this. We have the prophetic word. Now, in Peter's case, we look at prophecy as being foretelling. These prophets were for, and apostles were foretelling what is going to happen. He's talking about the word that he has was the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh. The Old Testament scriptures are going to foretell what's going to happen. We believe in prophecy today as foretelling. We have the word of God. We speak the word of God to people. Generally speaking, prophecy today is speaking the words of God to people. Okay? Not foretelling. That happened. Made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. And watch this. As to a lamp in a dark place. Revealing what's going to happen until the day dawns and the morning star rises. That's, this is code word for Jesus coming back into your hearts and knowing this first. Please know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never, ever, ever had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke, through, spoke by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. People get this message from God and speak the word to the people. That is how it works. Now, the anti-God world that we're living in does not understand this. The Bible is not just another book. The Bible is not a book that is subordinate to the Hindu writings or to the Koran or any other world religion book. It is the book of truth. It's the only book in the world with fulfilled prophecy And, folks, it's the only true holy book on earth. It is. Now, you won't hear this in your school systems. You won't hear this by your government. You won't hear this by the media. Now, listen, those three systems are in a process now of indoctrinating a whole country. And not just a country, but a world, the Western world in particular. Indoctrinated into a worldview that is anti-God. What you hear in schools today, you would have never heard 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Our world is on a decline, folks. Persia was the power to the east. The main power push was to the west. Why was Persia great? Have you ever wondered that? Why was Persia so great out of all those countries? And I'll tell you, it was God that made Persia great. The ram did according to his will because, because why? Because of God. Remember this, Daniel 2.21, he says, God removes kings, O Nebuchadnezzar, and God raises up kings, and you're just another one. He can raise you up and he can bring you down just as fast, Nebuchadnezzar. Persia will have its way for a time, but the tide will change, and Greece will come on the scene. Now let me just suggest something to you. You are watching news today. 24-7, bombarded with, we've said this so many times, when you wonder what in the world is going on. Did you ever, ever cross your mind? What in the world is going on? That was perfect. Yes, it was alarming. Dale, you are quick. You are quick on your feet. Remember this. This is God's world, and it's God's plan. Nebuch- Remember uh, Daniel uh, 4.35. Speaking to- Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, and he speaks these words about God. When he comes to his senses, after he's been chopped down and he's been grazing for seven seasons, I believe it's seven years, Nebuchadnezzar has his sanity restores, and he said this, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and no one of the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done, God? You ever have people say, "What? why did God do this? No. When you come before God, like Nebuchadnezzar had that experience, no one says, what have you done, God? All we do is just bow before him and say, thy will be done, Lord. Thy will be done. I want to give you... Well, before I get to that, God truly has the whole world in his hands, doesn't he? And I was going to sing to you. You know, he's got the whole world in his hands. 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 And we're going to stop right there. Yes, we are. Yeah. He does. He has the whole world in his hand. You and me, brother, in his hands. You and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Nothing is out of control with our God. Remember that. Don't get worried. Don't fret and fritter because someone seems like they're getting an edge in the world. Oh, no. Our God is in control. Things are working out on schedule. We are not to have a panic attack. We walk by faith. Verses 5 through 7, the second main player is a male goat and it is Greece. And I was considering suddenly, the takeover was sudden, suddenly a male goat, this is going to be Alexander the Great, came from the west and that is exactly where Greece is in relationship to Persia. West to east. The Bible is true. Even in the little details across the surface of the whole earth. Without touching the ground, talks of speed. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, and that is a powerful ruler, Alexander. Then he came to the ram who had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power, and I saw confronting the and I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him. Attacked the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. This is Greece. This is Alexander the Great. The male goat is Greece. And again, he comes from the west. And notice the speed at which he comes. Alexander's conquest was fast. Fast. Alexander had speed. Alexander had strength. Alexander had finesse. Alexander had cunning, and Alexander was a master, master tactician. A master tactician. Listen, he's a notable horn. Greece at the time of Daniel's vision was a bunch of warring sections, of warring tribes. And there was not a thought of a world power at the time of Babylon, that Greece would ever be considered a world power. But oh, it was. Daniel was seeing into the future. It happened just exactly like the Bible said it would. The Bible is true and the Bible is trustworthy. Now, a little background on Alexander the Great. It's kind of interesting. Just bear with me here. Alexander was 13 years old, Philip of Macedon. He was the richest guy in the world. decided that his boy needed a first-class teacher, so he gets him Aristotle to be his teacher. Now, Aristotle is big in Greece. Aristotle was taught by Plato, Plato was taught by Socrates, and what they taught this young man, Alexander the Great, that Greece is great, and every other cultures are barbarians, and should be slaves to the Greeks. Alexander learned this lesson well, and he takes over a city in Greece called Thebes, and the rest of the city does it with violence, and he does it quick. And the rest of the Greek states just bow before him, and he assumes his power right out of the gate. In verse 7, we see this in our text today. Alexander moves. In verse 6, he says he has furious power. And in verse 7, it says he has rage against the ram. And I'm wondering, why all this rage? Why all this furious power? Well, this is the reason why. This is the reason why. Persia had a failed invasion of the Greek homeland a hundred years earlier. This was after Babylon, okay? A hundred years earlier, Persia failed to enter the Greek homeland. The conflict had the famous battle of Thermopylae. Do you remember the 300 Spartans? You saw the, Maybe you saw the movie. And they were in the past, and they stopped the, 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 the onslaught. 300 Spartans withstood the test of thousands of Persian invaders. Alexander was punishing Persia for daring to invade Greece. His attack was furious. It was with rage and speed. And listen to this. He's a master tactician. He had 35 to 50,000 men against 2.5 million well-trained Persians. And he attacked with fury, and he won fast. That was Alexander's way. That was the way he operated fast let me ask a question everybody should get an a on this question are you ready why was greece great god let's try that again why was greece great god there you go okay a side note alexander did something very significant that inf- that impacted the world to this day he spread koine greek common greek throughout the known world Why is that significant? Because when Jesus came, there was a common language throughout the whole known world that the gospel could be spread. Rome put in a road system, but Alexander put in a language that was common to the people. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Verse 8, watch what happens here. In history, this is amazing what happens. Verse 8, therefore the male goat grew very great. He rages through the whole world, known world at that time. When he became strong, at his zenith, at his peak, the large horn was broken off. That's death. And in place of it, four notable ones that are going to be his generals came up towards the four winds of the earth. Those generals will be divided north, south, east, and west, just like the Bible says. Okay? Now keep this this in mind. So Alexander the Great dies in his 30s. This is historically accurate. He died young. At age 20, he came to rule. Six years it took to conquer the Persian Empire. At age 30, the, the, his empire spread from the Mediterranean to India. He actually got stopped in India because his, his generals were sick of fighting and winning. And they actually had a battle there, and they, he actually won in India but because the India prime minister or the Indian leader or Indian king or Indian whoever he was, was so gracious in defeat that Alexander says, no, I'm not going to go any farther. Interesting. At age 29, he says this. He has no worlds left to conquer, and he's lamenting that he's just been so successful. And at age 32, he dies in a drunken stupor in Babylon. Alexander the Great. Centuries prior to the birth of Alexander, Daniel predicted this death. At the peak, it would happen. And he would add a distribution of the empire to four notable ones, and it happened right on schedule. Now, before I get into those four generals, I want to tell you a little bit about Alexander's arrogance. Because you don't conquer like this, that young, without arrogance. Without some sort of hubris. This writer says this, While one might interpret this as Alexander enlarging his kingdom by rapid conquest, Another interpretation that he grew exceedingly arrogant. He really began to believe he was the great. He forgot or maybe never understood that it wasn't Alexander that was great. It was God that was great that made Alexander great. That his dominion was given to him by God. He was known to boast of his exploits even assuming divinity, claiming to be a descendant of Zeus. Isn't it amazing how humans elevate themselves? Now, where would he have gotten that from? Might he have gotten it from Aristotle, who got it from Plato, who got it from Socrates? Yeah. His self-magnification even caused him to require his troops to bow themselves before him in a submissive reverence. And it's little wonder that the next phase states, soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken off. Folks, there's a warning here. Remember Jesus speaking about the, the rich man that was building barns. More barns, more barns, and more barns, and storing up for himself. And Jesus said something very significant to him. You fool, this night your soul will be required of you putting everything into the egg basket of what I can get out of earth and ignoring God, Jesus said, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. How significant is that? God is opposed to the proud, and he will tear down the house of the proud, Proverbs 15, 25. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, assuredly he will not go unpunished, Proverbs 16.5. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken right on schedule. Alexander's kingdom was now distributed to four generals, four notable ones. History validates that four generals split up this kingdom. It wasn't three. It wasn't two. It wasn't six. It was four, just like The Bible says. The Bible is true. It predicted this. And they spread to the four winds, north, south, east, and west. And I want you to consider the four dynasties of Alexander. And the ones that we're going to focus on are going to be Ptolemy and Seleucids. Now, Ptolemy is down here in Egypt. He was friendly to the Jews. Seleucus, the Seleucids, were up here in Syria and Iraq and Iran and that sort of thing. This land bridge connected the two, and right in this area is Israel, the nation of Israel. These two kingdoms fought for 150 years for control. Guess where most of the fighting took place? Right in Israel, back and forth, back and forth. Out of Seleucus comes a significant person, Antiochus IV, better known as Antiochus Epiphany. Okay? These two guys are no longer mentioned in Scripture. They are given different areas. Cassander and Lysimachus are given different areas. They are no longer mentioned. The main players, because Israel is the focus of planet Earth, okay, anything happens in Jerusalem, the whole world perks up. Verses 9 through 12. The little horn. We're going to be introduced to this one that comes out of the Seleucus Empire. The little horn. Antiochus IV. Verses 9 through 12 and out of one of them, which is going to be Seleucus, a little horn. Now notice he's a little horn, and that always tells you it's little power. Horn is power. They start out small, just like the Antichrist starts out small, and will ascend to power. Antiochus starts out small and ascends to power, which grew exceedingly great towards the south. And if you remember, he grows great towards the south. He comes to the south. That goes into Israel, to the glorious land. So that's the, that's the picture. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now you're going to have to know what all that symbolism is. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary, would be the temple, was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. Now, when you read this section, this is not an easy section to understand. It takes a lot of study and a lot of digging to understand this. So, out of Seleucus comes the little horn. He starts small again, like Antichrist, and he gains power. Verse 9, he grew exceedingly powerful, just like Antichrist. He's a picture of the Antichrist. Antiochus IV is the eighth king of the Seleucid Empire in its present-day Syria. Present-day Syria. Syria's always been a nemesis of Israel. Always. He fought against the other divisions, and he gained power, and he invades Israel. He fits the picture of Antichrist. Antichrist IV is a picture, a type of Antichrist. Please remember that. Now, verses 10 and 11 are very difficult to interpret. Now, the host that we see here, he grew up to the host of heaven, cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground. And you wonder, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me see if I can help you. Host and stars usually refers to angels. But this context doesn't fit that. This context doesn't fit that. He grew up to the host of heaven. He he, he wanted to take over. He wanted to take over the things of God. He cast down some of the host. Now, the stars and the host can refer to angels, but again, it doesn't fit the context. Stars in Scripture are angels with one exception. You know what that is? That is the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, Joseph has two dreams. Both dreams, his brothers are going to be under him. The second dream, his brothers and his mother and his father are going to be under him. Watch the language. Joseph has a dream. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Joseph is saying that mom, dad, brothers, you're going to bow down to me. Now, his father doesn't take this so well in verse 10. So his father says this. He rebukes him. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers bow down to you before you? And his brothers envied him and became very red in the face. They became jealous of him and kept this matter in their mind. That's before they sold him into slavery. So those stars in this context are the Jewish people are the Jewish people. They refer to the sons of Israel, to the 12 tribes. The Jewish people are cast down and trodden. Antiochus is the killer. He hates Jews, just like Antichrist will. Just like Antichrist. A little bit more on this. Just a little bit more. Hang in there. History records that Antiochus arrived in Palestine when he arrived relied in the Palestine. He came in with a particular vengeance against the Jewish people. He kills 40,000 of them. Can you imagine that? 40,000. He takes 10,000 into slavery. And after he conquers that land, he, he fights, with, he fights, he conquers, he gets into Israel, and he wants to go down into Ptolemy. He wants to go down, but Rome stops him. There's a general, Popilius Lanius, stops him. And in his anger, he retreats back into Israel, and now he pours out more vengeance upon the Jewish people. What he does there, he goes in on a Sabbath. He did everything he could to offend the Jews. He puts a statue of the pagan god Zeus in the temple. He sacrifices a pig, and he doesn't just sacrifice the pig, but he spreads the pig's blood and everything else all over the temple, the holy of holies, uh, most holy place in, in Judaism. This is called the abomination of the desolation. He makes himself equal with the commander of the host of heaven, equal to God. And even his name, he gives himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God or God manifested on earth. That's how he looks at himself. The Jews, seeking to demean him, call him Antiochus Epiphanes. Just twist the word a little bit, which means madman. Antiochus the madman. Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped as God in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Now, I want you to focus on something. This one word in verse 12, with one section. Because of the transgression. Because of the transgression. What in the world does that mean? Antiochus the fourth, history records this wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and they should abandon their customs. So you Jewish people, you abandon your temple, you abandon your country, and you follow me, you're going to be okay. So what's the transgression of the Jews? It's this. The Jewish people will side with Antiochus and be traitors to God. And it is the exact same thing that happens in the tribulation period when many, many Jews will buy into the Antichrist being the Christ and abandon the true God. And he will turn on them in the middle of the tribulation. And this, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 24, is called the abomination of desolation. Now, think about something. Many people will compromise their faith to get along. So I'm not going to feel any heat or I'm not going to feel any pressure. Those who buy into the indoctrination of a culture or a system or a leader like this will cave at the end. And they will buy into what the Antichrist or people like Antiochus want. But those who will resist the indoctrination will not buy into the deception. They will say, no, we, it'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't care what you say, Nebuchadnezzar, we will follow our God. That is what we're going to have to do. So, it's good to know verses 13 and 14 are there. Good to know. Antiochus Epiphanes' days are numbered just like Antichrist. Then I heard a holy one. That's an angel speaking. And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, two angels talking to one another, Daniel eavesdropping. Okay, here's this. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? How long is this going to go on? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And they said to me, 2,300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Like Antichrist, Antiochus carnage will only last so long. And that's like hip, hip, Array. 2,300 days. The Holy One tells us how long it is. 2,300 days. Now remember this. Sin People who sin may prosper for a time, but there's always, always, always a day of reckoning. Always a day of reckoning. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. People say, hey, I've gone, I did this for years. I'm getting away with it. Oh, no, you aren't. You will not get away with it. He's our Holy One speaking, a specific time period. And you know what happens? God raises up a man. His name is Judas Maccabeus. And it's the Maccabean rebellion against Antiochus and the Seleucids. And he goes to a guerrilla war against Seleucid, and he wins, and he cleanses the temple, and guess what? It's in 2,300 days, boom, that comes to an end. And that's where we get the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Hanukkah, is celebrated each year. It's for Israel to remember this event. A little bit more on this. Antiochus has his way for 2,300 days, and then it ends. But the Maccabees are going to be successful. Watch what happens. On the 25th day of the Jewish months of Kislev, it came time to relight the menorah. He goes into the temple, relight the menorah in the holy place. And the menorah has no oil. So they look around, and they find some holy oil from a priest. But it's a very small amount. They use that small amount of oil, which should have lasted hours, but it ends up lasting eight days. So the temple is cleansed, and they celebrate this festival of lights in remembrance of God doing a miracle with this oil over a period of eight days, which should have lasted a very short period of time. Antiochus days were numbered, and never forget this, Antichrist days are numbered. In conclusion, the clash of the ram and the goat. We have just gone through an amazing section of Scripture proving the accuracy of Bible prophecy. If you don't get anything else out of all of this, it's the accuracy of Bible prophecy. Who's in charge? God is in charge. Twelve years prior to Persia, overcoming an impenetrable Babylon with a water supply, high walls, can't be breached. No one on earth would expect Babylon's defeat, but God did. Persia came in on schedule. Cyrus was used from God to release the Jews. Jews, He released the Jews to go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel's temple. On God's schedule, Persia had its time. Then Greece rose to power. And again, a common language by Greece. Alexander's death. His kingdom was divided by four generals. 150 years they had a fight between Seleucus and Ptolemy for dominance of the land. And the land was trampled down in the middle by the war for 150 years. From Seleucus comes a man called Antiochus IV, a type of Antichrist. Now listen to the comparisons here. Type of Antichrist. Who gives himself a title, Antiochus, of Epiphanes, God manifests. It's the same thing that Antichrist does. Gives himself the title of God and wants to be worshipped as God in the temple. Another comparison. Many Jews sided with Antiochus. And many Jews will side with the Antichrist. Antiochus desecrates the temple. Antichrist desecrates the temple. Antiochus hates and kills Jews. And Antichrist hates and, and kills Jews. Both reigns are numbered, and be sure of this. Remember we, we, last time we talked, the heavenly court is seated and their dominion will be taken away. Our world is progressing on schedule, folks. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall by God's decree, all marching towards a climatic end. And I want you to realize, don't panic, the king is coming. The king is coming. Hear the words in Luke 21, 25 through 28. Jesus is going to be speaking. Before I read this, I want you to realize something. We're living in a time like none other. No other time in history has been like today. The Jews are in the land. May 14, 1948, a pivotal time. Technology has allowed humanity to kill itself. Lest these days be cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. But for the elect's sake, they'll be cut short. For the Jewish people's sake, they'll be cut short. No time in history has been like this. This is not a time to stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and say, I'm not here, this isn't going on. It's not a time to hide our light. It's not a time to be a secret undercover Christian, afraid to speak the truth to the culture that you live in. Lift up, folks. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. The coming of the Son of Man is soon. The rapture of the church really could happen at any moment. we got to be ready. Listen to what Jesus said. There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. What does he mean by that? There's going to be tumult. And in the earth, distress of nations and perplexity and seas and waves roaring. Tumult. Men's hearts failing failing them in fear and expectation of of those things that are coming on the earth. Tumult. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, everything will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Remember, he went in the clouds in Acts chapter 1, 9, and he will come back in the clouds. This is another place that says he's coming in the clouds, just like Revelation chapter 1 says. Now, when these things begin to happen, when you see the birth pangs begin to happen, when you see these things accelerating right before your eyes, he says this, look up your heads because your redemption draws near. Look up. Have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to you today. Zero in for just a second. Forget about the world that is out there for just a second. The Spirit of God is speaking to you today. Have eyes to see and ears to hear the things of the Spirit. You are the church, folks. You are the intended audience. See and hear. The King is indeed coming. And listen to this. You can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The King is coming. For we who are saved, we who are born again of the Spirit, we who believe this with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we cry out, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. Fringe Christians are going, oh no, oh no, I don't, I don't, I don't like this. It's coming a little too quick for me. I got some other things I need to do. Nothing will be compared with Jesus' kingdom. Nothing will be compared with heaven. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I hath not seen, no ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for us. This is going, look at. This is a trap right here, thinking that this is great and wonderful. It is not. Heaven is where we belong. We're in foreign territory here, foreign territory. The king is coming. You can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. And Holy Spirit, you're the one that does the work in each one of our hearts. Speak to us things that you want us to retain from this. Antiochus was a type of Antichrist. You wanted us to know this. We do know that there will be one coming on the scene that will be very slick and very charismatic and deceive the whole world, the majority of the world. But, oh, those who will not buy into the indoctrination, who will not take the mark of the beast, those will be saved. They might be martyred, but they'll be saved and live with you forever. May we, in this church age, this time of grace, say yes to the Lord Jesus and give our all to Him not our part to him, not a little fragment to him, but give our whole lives to him and truly become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that now for each person in this room. Make a commitment to say, I will follow you, Jesus. I will live for you and no longer live for myself. Holy Spirit, please do your work in the hearts of mind of each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.